welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the University of New Brunswick. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Keith Shepard Grant about his book, Enthusiasms and Loyalties, The Public History of Private Feelings in the Enlightenment Atlantic, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. Keith Shepard Grant is an associate professor at Crandall University, a Christian liberal arts university located in Moncton, New Brunswick, where he teaches courses on early North American history and a new course called Bittersweet Histories of Coffee, Tea, and Chocolate. He has a PhD from the Department of History at the University of New Brunswick, where he was supervised by Dr. Elizabeth Mankey, the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Studies. Keith has won several prestigious research scholarships for his work, and he is a founding co-editor of the website Borealia, Early Canadian History. Over the past decade or so, I've had the pleasure of attending several Atlantic Canada Studies conferences with Keith. He's a wonderful lecturer, and he does fascinating research. Keith, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book. Thanks so much, Nicole. I'm glad we could have this conversation. evolved out of your PhD dissertation. Can you tell us a bit about the book and what drew you to the topic during grad school? Sure. Part of my motivation was place. Uh, As a maritimer myself, I've become interested in how this region fits into larger histories, or in other words, taking an outward-looking approach to regional history. I sometimes describe part of my scholarship as uh, big ideas in small places, Uh, kind of exploring how ordinary people in communities outside of major cities and centres participated in transatlantic debates and communities. Uh, Another thing that drew me to the topic was the puzzle of Edward Manning's tears. Um, As I read the journal of this uh, religious leader in early 19th century Annapolis Valley, Nova Scotia, I was struck uh, by the intense emotions that he described while reading, uh, weeping while reading biographies, uh, barely able to see through his tears while he's reading missionary and imperial accounts. And it was clear that there was more going on than only his own story or his own kind of inner psychological drama. So um, as I dug deeper, uh, I discovered that many other readers of this time period were having similar responses to what to them was a reading revolution. Uh, They had access to books and periodicals in a way that would have been unimaginable uh, even a generation earlier. And they feelingly uh, identified with characters in books, whether fictional or real. And I learned about some of the imperial and missionary dimensions to Manning's tears, as he, from this small uh, Nova Scotia rural community, became caught up in the spread uh, in places like uh, Myanmar and India of Christian missions and the British Empire. And these were world-changing events, uh, according to his theological interpretation of them. And uh, he was literally moved to tears because of it. So I guess for me, as I was kind of starting this research, digging into the puzzle of this one man's tears was the stars. 
And then as I continued to read letters and journals by other figures in the same community, I realized that there was this whole uh, wide range of religious and political emotions being experienced and debated in this one place. And that was the motivation that kind of led me to dig deeper. As we've seen in recent years, if only in the reaction to the popular musical Hamilton, there's still a great deal of interest in the American Revolution. What does your study contribute to the understanding of this event and its aftermath? Yeah, there's been some great work uh, in the last decade or so about the role of uh, that emotions played uh, in the American Revolution. And I'm thinking especially of Nicole Eustace's book, uh, Passion is the Gale, which is so good on understanding patriot emotions. Uh, my goal in part was to shine a little bit more light on the wide range of loyalist as well as patriot experiences and emotions during these revolutionary decades. Um, I think that we could be forgiven for assuming that uh, the American Revolution was the inevitable consequence of a slow drift, a kind of long divorce, as, you, as it were, uh, between the culture of England and uh, its American colonies. You know, as we kind of move through that 100, 150 years from the early 17th century into the middle of the 18th century. But I don't, I don't think that's what we find. Uh, in many ways, American colonists had actually drawn closer to British culture during the 18th century. Uh, and that's through a variety of means, like consumer culture, uh, religious uh, networks, military victories, um, a devotion to English constitutional liberties. Um, and this, I would argue, remained the case up until the eve of the revolution, uh, not really disrupted until British policies in the 1760s kind of pushed things over an, a cliff. Um, so I would argue that up until then, up until the mid-1760s and in many cases beyond, loyalism was not an aberration or a minority view held by a few losers or kind of imperial sycophants. Uh, it was the default political disposition of the majority of American colonists. And so understanding that long history of loyalism before and after, as well as during the revolution, and then the ruptures that the revolution caused in that story, uh, telling that story is one of the goals of the book. Well, in the book, you explore the history of major events, such as the American Revolution, the Loyalist settlement in Nova Scotia, and the War of 1812 through the emotional lives recorded in journals and other writings by historical figures such as Handley Chipman, Jacob Bailey, Henry Aline, and Edward Manning that you talked about earlier. I have two questions for you. Can you briefly explain why you picked each of the four people you study in the book? And what can we learn from observing major historical events through personal reflections? In general, uh, each of these people were what I guess we could call middling leaders in Cornwallis Township. And each of them left a significant archive. Uh, each of them also gives us a window into not only their own experiences and ideas, but also those of the political and religious communities to which they belonged. So they show us something beyond themselves. 
And I would say that even in as homogeneous a settler community as Cornwallis Township is, there's a remarkable amount of diversity, a spectrum of emotions and ideas in that one community. So uh, Hanley Chipman migrated from Newport, Rhode Island to Nova Scotia in the 1760s. And he was variously a cabinet maker, a rum distiller, a justice of the peace. His life was very much connected to the wider Atlantic world. Uh, he reflects on what it was like to try to make a living on the sea during a period of imperial wars, for example. Um, his 1776 commonplace book, uh, especially, is just such a compelling document to show us how he fashioned his sense of political identity on the eve of the American Revolution uh, from his perch in Nova Scotia at that time. Uh, so that's Jake. Uh, uh, that's Hanley Chipman. So Jacob Bailey was an Anglican minister who arrived in Nova Scotia as a Loyalist refugee after his life in Maine, uh, then northern Massachusetts, was no longer sustainable. Uh, for him, loyalism had been about being a part of a wider cosmopolitan British empire. Um, but his experience as a refugee was so disillusioning for him. And he was, partly because of that disillusionment, a writer of incredibly acerbic bitter, satirical poetry that is, I have to admit, kind of fun to read. Um, Henry uh, Allen, or Aline, was an itinerant New Light preacher who led a, a, a prolonged period of revival in the maritime provinces that coincided with the War of Independence. And rather than thinking about him primarily as... Um, somebody who promoted the heights of religious fervor or enthusiasm, I looked at the wide spectrum of emotions that align, and maybe even more importantly, a network of female correspondents, other new lights, who were self-consciously attempting to cultivate uh, this wider range of emotions. And uh, Edward Manning, who um, I kind of round out the book as a kind of coda with, uh, the tearful reader, he left us about 40 years of diaries. And uh, over the course of those years, he underwent a, a really dramatic emotional and religious transformation uh, from being a fiery new light enthusiast, uh, much like a line, to a much more orderly, settled, moderate Baptist. Uh, however, he didn't become less emotional. And this is one of the, the key arguments I try to finish with. Rather, he attempted to cultivate different emotions. So he kind of went from ec less ecstasy to more sympathy uh, over the course of his life. You asked uh, what we could learn about uh, observing bigger historical events from personal reflections. And I think that case studies or micro-histories are a nice complement to more thematic topical studies. Uh, these allow us to see how broader themes or historical movements or forces or sets of ideas actually play out on the ground, kind of let us see kind of a lived reality. And to be sure, they're a bit messier and they can be a bit more complex or idiosyncratic 
And we always have to ask the question of representation uh, or representativeness. But I think our understanding is really advanced uh, when we can switch back and forth between the wide angle of thematic studies and the macro of personal case studies or microhistories. In the introduction, you write, and I'll quote, feelings were not only central to history, feelings themselves have a history. Can you explain what that means? So emotions uh, take their meaning from context. So for example, uh, tears mean something different at the cutting board in the kitchen with onions or at a wedding or at a Toronto Maple Leafs game. Um, the, the tears mean something different in each case. Uh, male tears, for example, have sometimes been stigmatized uh, and seen as not masculine enough. But at other times, male tears have been seen as a sign of compassionate strength and the essence of masculinity. So historians of emotion uh, study the changing meanings of feelings and emotional expressions in different times and places. Um, looking at how a group of people experienced or how they worried about or argued about their emotions is one way of understanding who that group was and what their values were. I found that reading the works of the four figures that you study really brought events like the American Revolution or the War of 1812 to life. It really resonated with me as I, as I read through those chapters. But as for the title of your book, which is Enthusiasms and Loyalties, you deliberately use the plural form of these words. What's the significance of this? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Um, I want to show that there was a very wide range of religious and political identities and emotions that were possible, uh, feelable, I guess, uh, during the period. So thinking about loyalties, for example, uh, during the revolution in the 13 colonies, political discourse and identity became very polarized. Uh, whereas, say, early in the imperial crisis, it was still possible to have figures like uh, John Dickinson, who was able to disagree fervently with British policy and ask the colonists to come together in some kind of a, uh, a union to oppose those policies, but at the same time still professed his uh, ardent devotion to the king and he insisted that reconciliation was still possible. So that's, you know, even during the early 1760s. But by the mid-1770s, uh, that middle or gray space was quickly disappearing. Uh, committees of correspondence did their best to police political feelings. And they, you know, required citizens to choose uh, one way or the other and kind of um, polarizing the landscape. And I think that in spaces like Nova Scotia, there was a, a wider range of political feelings and loyalties that were still possible. And that's one of the things that I wanted to do from that vantage point in the British North America. 
to see what that shows us about what emotions were like before, during, and after uh, the revolution. So that's the loyalties. Uh, and similarly with religious emotions, um, critics referred to many evangelical Protestants as enthusiasts. And if we were to find a kind of a contemporary term that would do the same job, we'd probably pick fanatics as the kind of uh, a certain kind of extremism. And the worry was that enthusiasts um, were corrosive to social order, that they were going to return um, Anglo-American culture to the time of the English Civil War. Things were going to be turned upside down again. And uh, they were... Uh, critics believed that there was only this one relationship between a certain kind of religion and social vision. Whereas I think that the um, religious figures or the religious voices that I look at show us that there was actually quite a wide range of emotions and social visions uh, possible, even among those uh, who were labeled enthusiasts. So I guess if I was to summarize that, I might say I wanted to portray loyalism beyond the polarization and religion beyond just the heights of revival, but to see uh, the broader landscape. Well, as shown in your work, loyalism meant more than just an attachment to a king. It represented a commitment to British constitutionalism. Can you comment on what this means? Let me answer this from two perspectives. Um, First, let's think about the long history of loyalism or loyalism before the American Revolution. So going back to what I mentioned earlier, the problem with defining loyalists just in relationship to the American Revolution means that we see it as being a, a political group that's created in reaction uh, to the revolution. Yet, uh, I think that loyalism was... Again, that's this default political disposition of colonists. Uh, for them, their reasons for being loyal included their belief that the British constitutional settlement secured after the Glorious Revolution of 1688 uh, gave them unparalleled liberties. So in other words, they loved their king in part because of the balance of powers between the king and the parliament. A devotion to a particular king was always tied up in this constitutional arrangement that, that they believed gave them um, security for their liberties, the unknown uh, in any of the neighboring uh, empires. So that's one way to come at it. Another way to come at your question is to think about Jacob Bailey's experience and his loyalism and his emotional relationship or devotion to the king uh, was profoundly changed by his experience as a loyalist refugee. Uh, he believed eventually that the king had betrayed the loyalists, uh, first by making offers of peace to uh, the what he would refer to as the rebels and the American colonies, and then even more importantly by ignoring the, the desperate plight of loyalist refugees who Bailey said, you know, had given up so much for the king and now to be uh, forgotten by him altogether. So Bailey would write about 
needing to find a way to be loyal without, in his words, any remainders of affection. Um, so later in his life, he's still nursing his bitterness towards the king, but he's uh, vigorously advocating for British liberties while he's trying to navigate political controversies in Nova Scotia. Uh, for him, British constitutionalism and British liberty had become detached from his devotion to the king, at least at an emotional level. Well, I found Jacob Bailey absolutely fascinating. You explore a drama that he wrote called The Majesty of the Mob, along with some of his radical poetry. How did his work reflect the loyalist experience? And what new light does his personal experience shed on what we know about the loyalist experience more generally? Yeah, the drama and the poetry that Bailey writes, especially once he's in Nova Scotia, works by exaggerating, by um, satirically lampooning um, both the British officials and the American officials. And uh, The Majesty of the Mob is his dramatic retelling of his experience with the Committee of Correspondence in his main community. And uh, I, I've often had my students, uh, when I teach on the Loyalists, read both the official record of the Committee of Correspondence and then Bailey's dramatic retelling of it. And it's it's quite a comparison when we see how he tries to point out what he sees as contradictions and uh, which features he chooses to exaggerate. And I think what he really does show us is the role that emotions play in the work of the Committees of Correspondence that they are not simply interested in outward performances of political loyalty. They really are, at an interesting level, policing uh, affection and disaffection. You know, Bailey is charged with disaffection with the cause of liberty, which you would think would be a fairly um, innocuous and internal matter, but it becomes brought out into the daylight and, you know, his political feelings, as well as those of others, become a matter of public record and public concern. Um, when Bailey is in Nova Scotia writing about his experiences again, he writes poetry inspired by Samuel Butler and uh, Hugh de Brass, which is um, satirical verse about the social tumult of the English Civil War. And uh, that poetry, as well as Bailey's um, poetry that's influenced by it, really speaks about this world that's turned upside down. And it's a way for him to express his disillusionment, his disaffection with Britain as well as America. And it just reminds us that loyalists' feelings uh, weren't static either. Scholarship about the Enlightenment has come a long way over the last two to three decades, but I think many of us would still be inclined to associate the Enlightenment with rationality and an emotional sensibility with romanticism. Yet you seem to locate emotions squarely within Enlightenment discourse. I'd like your comment on that. I guess to start, uh, emotions, or as they would have said it uh, during the period, uh, passions and affections, 
were studied and debated uh, during the Enlightenment. Um, so feelings, both at a personal level, at the level of kind of the, the individual, or on a societal level, uh, were the subject of Enlightenment inquiry. So we have figures like Francis Hutchinson and Adam Smith uh, writing important treatises uh, trying to make sense of the moral nature of emotions, the role that uh, emotions have in relationship to the will or uh, the heart or the mind, and especially in the case of Smith on moral sentiments, uh, the social role of uh, emotions. So just at a, the basic level of it's something that they debated during the Enlightenment, that's there. But on the other hand, I think if we zoom out a little bit and think about the Enlightenment as one aspect of the long 18th century, uh, one aspect of the long 18th century, um, the Enlightenment coincided with periods of intense religious awakening on both sides of the Atlantic, and it was a century of uh, war and conflict and intense political turmoil that unsettled uh, thousands, if not millions of people. So all of this stirred up intense emotions. And so we would have to have a kind of disembodied idea of the Atlantic, I think, or of the Enlightenment, rather, not to see this as a period of uh, strong emotion, as well as uh, simply rationality. And I think that those experiences of intense emotion begged intellectual questions. What do we do with these feelings that seem to be uh, so at play uh, in not just people's personal lives, but in the most consequential public events of the period? And I didn't mention the French Revolution yet, but we sure could think about the role that terror and fear and so many other emotions play in the public life of the French Revolution, uh, not just in France either, but in North America as people wondered about the repercussions, the ripple effects of uh, emotions in that setting. We just mentioned to kind of bring that question about the Enlightenment to home to Nicole. Um, one of my favorite sources that I got to work with was the ledger of Hanley Chipman. It, it was a 300-page financial record of his work as a justice of the peace. And... I suspect you would make much more know what to make use of it uh, better than I do for most of it. But at the very end of this long book, he includes an inventory of a local library. And it includes a hundred and some titles, uh, including many of the Enlightenment and the Great Awakening's most important works on emotions, uh, including... Uh, Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, books by Jonathan Edwards, uh, Isaac Watts, and other figures. Um, at the same time that he's recording those books in his ledger, he's also writing a couple of pages over and in other books about the local controversies about a religious uh, about a religious emotions in their town. And they're trying to make sense of what they see as excesses or uh, a changing focus of authority or just how to deal with expressions of emotion that were unsettling. In other words, people like Chipman 
are aware of the transatlantic debates and those um, very important um, authors and treatises on the emotions. And they're then applying and adapting those ideas and debates to make sense of circumstances in their own communities, which are themselves in flux in the process of coming to new identities politically and religiously. In the introduction, you quote former President John Adams, who famously wrote the following, and I'll quote here. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American revolution. What does this mean in the context of the time period and what does it mean, in your opinion, to the loyalists who escaped the revolution to settle in Nova Scotia? I think that Adams meant in part that the revolution was bigger than the War of Independence, that the underlying changes in American political culture started before and lasted after the military conflict itself. And as Adams uh, language suggests uh, emotions are part of that uh, of explaining that change. Um, Benedict Anderson influentially talked about how nationalism or the creation of national communities requires a kind of imagination uh, that people need to develop a sense of belonging and connection to see themselves as part of a national project. Uh, this doesn't just happen automatically because of geography, that there's something at the level of imagination and feeling that has to take place. And emotions are a part of that sense of political belonging. And in the case of the revolution are a part of that sense of political change. For loyalists, uh, we might say that their story too started before and lasted after the War of Independence. That the story of loyalism isn't just defined by the American Revolution, although no question the revolution is an important and uh, unsettling chapter in that story. And it did force loyalists to continually uh, fashion and refashion their sense of identity. Uh, and whether that's Hanley Chipman deciding to reaffirm his devotion to the king in 1776, um, or whether it's Jacob Bailey uh, stubbornly maintaining his loyalism, uh, even in the face of disillusionment. And what I think all those stories tell us is that emotions weren't just private. They had consequences for public life as well. Keith, I found your work absolutely fascinating. What are you working on currently, and when can we expect your next book? <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Uh, a couple of things on the go. Uh, one is uh, I'm not quite done with the history of emotions, so I'm definitely thinking more about uh, perhaps tears and um, maybe a project on that road, but also have some things on the go on the history of reading. Um and a fun, probably shorter project on uh, Richard Preston and his role in the creation of a, a Black community in Nova Scotia. So having some fun with those stories right now. Keith, thanks so much for talking to us today. 
Thank you, Nicole. It was a pleasure. And thank you for your perceptive questions. My guest today has been Keith Shepard Grant. He's the author of Enthusiasms and Loyalties, The Public History of Private Feelings in the Enlightenment Atlantic, published by McGill Queens University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter. We appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on January 31st, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.